Raising sons um, as a feminist is really, really important. I remember raising my children, my boys, thinking they are going to be, there are women alive, girls alive, at this moment, who are going to love and be loved by my sons. And I need to make sure that I hand on to those women that I have not yet met, feminist men who understand what it is to be a woman, who understand the, um, the injustices and, and who take responsibility for that. Welcome back to another episode of The Tea with Nikki. We are pro-tea, not anti-coffee. But as I've been saying, if you have a glass of wine or a quarantini, that's fine as well. Please do enjoy this in the background as a podcast, but switch over when it is the challenges as I do find them very entertaining myself. <laughs> Today I'm speaking with Kate Nichols, who is the author of Under the Camelford Tree. Uh, this was so incredible and I don't usually get starstruck, but leading up to it, I was so nervous in what I could actually speak to her about because the amount that she's managed to accomplish and the way she writes is just incredibly inspiring. Her book is available at exclusive books online, on Amazon, on Kindle, on Audible. She reads it as well. She is extremely positive, but realistic at the same time. She addresses uncomfortable situations and has this innate ability to have comfortable conversations about uncomfortable topics. So we speak about her book, we speak about her homeschooling, we have a bit of fun as well where we play a bit of Pictionary. I hope that you enjoy listening and watching her as much as I enjoyed speaking with her. Hello my darling. Hi, how are you? I'm very good. How are you, sweetheart? I'm good, thanks. I'm just in such awe. I feel like I've been so nervous the whole weekend to speak to you after reading your book. I'm just like, oh my God. Oh my darling. Oh my God. That is the sweetest thing. There's absolutely nothing to be nervous about at all. That's so sweet. I just have to ask, you know, you opened up a Time Atlas book. You opened up on the correct page, the African continent page, and yeah. decided to drop a finger. And second try, you got Botswana, but why Africa, the continent to start with? Um, I, I think, I, I, you know, it, it sounds very sort of simplistic, but I think it was because it is the cradle of humankind. Um, and um, that's, let's, let's go right back to the, you know, I was, I was passionate about evolutionary biology. It, it just seemed that the actual, the, the natural place to go. Were quite a prominent figure, WAR, so War Against Rape. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you shared your story uh, in 1998 when you were doing an H HIV AIDS work yeah. with a woman, and you opened up and shared about your own sexual abuse yeah. experience. Yeah, yeah. Um, and saying the importance of sharing your story. So, is this kind of what led you to, to write? I was 100%, and that was such a fantastic question. When I saw that question, I was really happy. And you know something, Nikki? You are the first person, first reader, that has picked that out. Because I dropped it in quite subtly. It's, it, I refer to it a little bit subtly throughout the book, but I don't focus on it because that wasn't the theme, that wasn't the focus yeah. of the book. Um, but yeah. Um, uh, I think it's I think it's terribly important 
and it's terribly important with children that we that we listen and that we believe. It's yeah. really, really important. Because, because I saw it was such a prolific moment in the book where you opened up and you said it's important and then the other younger woman started standing up and opening up about yes. yes. I remember sitting under under a tree one on one particular day um, with a, a, a small group of women and we were we were we were talking and and I shared what had happened to me as a child and there was the look on on one particular woman's face was I will never forget it. It wasn't it wasn't relief, it was I don't know what it was. It was it was and, and she cried and she cried and it, 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 it was almost like her tears were rusty. Do you know what I mean? They were it, she had not cried for so long. And we sat under this tree and then we just all cried together. And and it was a really it was really, really powerful. And what I tried, and I would always, when I went into villages, go and speak to the chief's wife. Obviously the chief first, because, yeah. but, but the chief's wife, and, and, and get her permission. And, in, and so that there was somewhere that people could, people could go, you know, when we left the village, um, that there was there was there was a focus that the women could go and and we would go to the local we would also go to the local um clinic afterwards and just, so there was always backup so we would yeah. say when we go yes you can ring us but we you know we, we we were you know hundreds of miles away um but you know there's the local clinic we've been there and we go you can go to the chief's wife and obviously to the police blah 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 um so the sharing of stories was really, really, really important. And the, the, the poster letter for Justice Day was an extraordinary thing because these were women who could share. Yeah. And they, you know, um, your, your listeners may not know about that, but we, 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 we wanted to enable women to speak out and the chief of the whole country was the president. And for, to and enable them to speak out anonymously so they weren't afraid just so that the the men who were in charge and they were good men my goodness the chief of police oh what a hero this man was we, we were there was there was a huge amount of, of of interest particularly because of the hiv problems the rape and uh, you know this was a very big deal this was the health of the nation, as well as the mental health of these individuals. Yeah. Um, and so they wrote. Um, they wrote to the. They, they wrote their stories to to the to the um, president, and they were all posted on the same day. So the women would take the um, the letters to the local clinic or to the local tin shop, and we had an arrangement that they would then all be posted on the same day. So there was this massive amount of mail that arrived. Um, literally, apparently, we were told that it blocked the hallway. Um, and the response was immediate. It was extraordinary. Um, I, my respect for how the Botswana government responded to the HIV crisis, it knows no bounds. 
um, and in the, you know, in a very short space of time, action was taken, um, which is a which is a big deal, a very big. I think as well, they could look at you as sort of a hopeful beacon because it was happened in your past, but you yes, there and you're helping others. So that's right. So, so that many years before, um, I read um, a, a book by Alice Miller called The Roots of Violence in Child Rearing. And it genuinely was life changing. There are, there are some books in my life which have had such a visceral, physical impact on me. It's not like, oh, yes, there's a few good ideas there. This is, I, I, this is central. I've got to pay attention and I've got to really follow this. Um, and she was an extraordinary woman. She was a she was a Swiss psychiatrist, psychoanalyst, Freudian psychoanalyst, um, who blessed women threw that all away and said, this is absolute nonsense. This is I've got to start believing these people who tell me about the abuse that they experienced as a child instead of talking about Oedipal complexes and Electra complexes and God knows what. Ridiculous. Um, and she wrote an article in Bridget, which was a, a sort of the equivalent of Marie Claire in Germany in the 1960s, I think, maybe early 70s, can't remember, um, about sexual abuse in childhood and the flood of you know the same thing happened to her as happened to the president it's just like whoa really it's the business of sharing your story the minute you share your story other people come out because they are trapped by shame or fear or guilt um and the minute you open that door to somebody by saying this has happened to me and and i'm okay now or you don't have to be okay to say this has happened to me you can also say this has happened to me and i'm broken tell the truth and we are as women we are very uncomfortable about sharing when we feel that we have failed as a parent um and i think it's particularly difficult nowadays when all you've got to do is to go on Instagram and somebody's done some amazing, I don't know, birthday cake for their child or taken their child on a trip or has, I don't know what, you, you know what I mean, we're yeah. always comparing. And, and I thought it's really, really important and I wanted the reader to get to know the family, to get to know the family in its full health so that they understood what happened when, when it, when it, when it, when, when I started to fragment and when the family started to fragment. And the, and the way that the children were so um, profoundly, I mean, they were without a question of a doubt, my, the, 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 the driving energy of my healing. There's no question of that. And then she wrote, she wrote um, a, a, a extraordinary breaking down the walls of silence, I think that was one of the most, that was the guiding force for me in Botswana because the wall of silence is what has held us back. We don't share, we don't tell. Yeah. And, um, and that time, you know, I told, there were so many stories I could have told and I was very careful about just pulling out 
a few. One, because they're not my stories. Really important, you can't tell other people's stories. Um, and it's all about silence. Mm. If we are not, if we keep silent, we will never get better. And that's why I wanted to be very open and not silent, not just about what had happened to me, but about what happened to me afterwards and how it impacted on my capacity to be a parent. You know, there's that, you know, there's that very, very difficult line of the book, you know, uh, don't make me be a mother, I, I can't be a mother. Because I couldn't be a woman, couldn't be a person. <laughs> um, and it's really important that we share these bits of our stories because other people then come out and go, yeah, I didn't like to say because we, you know, I felt embarrassed. Um, and, and I think it is the most powerful thing. I think learning, we learn through story anyway, whatever it is, whether you're learning about history, biology, math, whatever, you need the story. You need every, we are storytellers. That's who we are as human beings. And yeah. our stories are small. They don't have to be big events. They don't have to be great, you know, you don't have to have climbed Mount Everest to have an interesting story. Um, it's how we deal with the little bits of our life, I think, that's, that's really, really important. And I mean, I, I think through your post-traumatic stress, you definitely carried um, your Alice Miller's influence with you because yeah. you, and she pulled yourself out of it as well. And afterwards, then I see the way that you, you are now and having engaged with you before, you carry that through with you. You're mindful about what you say and what you share and how that impacts other people as well. But also, you're very positive. You you always find the lesson in sort of everything. Is that also to do with Alice Miller? No, I think I'm quite. I think I'm quite a positive person. I think that's probably to do with my mum, who is who is very positive. Um, and she is, you know, she was definitely a glass half full person. And 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 so am I. I'm realistic. I'm not. I'm not sentimental. Um, um, and I recognise when there are things that have gone so wrong that there's, you know, I don't pretend that everything is all right. I'm very honest, yeah. and I think that's really important. So if the, if the things are going badly, my children knew about it. If we didn't have any money. They, you know, I didn't, I didn't pretend. Whatever, whatever was happening, nothing was, nothing was swept under the table. And sometimes, uh, one of my kids, Tra Travis, um, at, at one point said, "Oh, mom, why? Do, you know, you know, thanks for sharing. You're sharing too much." But y later, um, uh, uh, y years later, he went, "You know, mom, I'm so glad that you did that because." what he was then discovering was how with families who have this veneer of perfection and nothing is perfect nothing the minute you strip that veneer away and the imperfections are exposed um if they if they're exposed later then then i think children feel bewildered and puzzled and can even feel betrayed um i think it's much better if everybody knows what's going on and yeah in an upfront way. So it's not a question of being positive um, and saying, oh, everything's marvellous. Saying, no, this is, this is awful, but this is how it is. Yeah. And 
I know you even like criticized yourself in the book by saying that you've been told you have unconventional parenting methods and you also have unconventional homeschooling methods, which I know you've been inspired by so many books um, and your homeschooling methods was not inspired by little men. But you're also a very creative person as you were an actress before you moved to Botswana. So when structuring your lesson plans, did you just let your creativity flow and think, how would I like to be taught or, you know, building I, mountains or making paper out of elephants? Yeah, I, I think initially very much so. Because remember the first, um, when we started, I didn't know that it was going to go on. Um, it was an experiment. They, th things weren't going terribly well for them at school. Um, and, uh, and, and, I, and I, they were losing confidence. And I thought, let's try this. Isn't it? Certainly little men. And certainly Richard Dawkins, because what he introduced me to, which is really important, was the, was, the, was the blend between science and the arts and the humanities. Because when I was a kid, you went to the chemistry lab, and then you went to, you did your physics in another lab, and then you went to another room to do history. It was literally geographically separated. It wasn't just in terms of of intent was a physical separation um, and it wasn't until I was in my 30s that I realized that, that was nonsense that that was a false construct so I wanted my kids to whatever I was teaching them I wanted them to meet the person like if you were if we were learning about um, you know, if you're learning about gravity, then understand, meet Newton. If you're learning um, about, um, you know, Galileo and, 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 and looking up and seeing the mountains of the moon for the first time, um, learn about him as a person. Just picture what it must have been like for him to be in that cathedral in Pisa, watching that pendulum and then saying to the kids, and how do you think? How did he time it? Never, never dumbing down. Never assuming that you know kids can't grasp things. And for every every term, I had a theme. So there was a. Um, it might be water. It could be. Um, uh, remember one theme which was madness, which was a really interesting one. Um, and we would we did King Lear for our play, um, and then we looked at Geoffrey Masson's work, and we looked at how um, mad pe people who were um, didn't fit into society in the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, 1900s were considered mad and, and we looked at the politicization of that and um, so that was really interesting and then in, incorporate them looking at neurology so the science of it so that you've got that which was really interesting um, but I, I did have a little bit of trouble integrating maths but I found a way so we did we looked at we looked at um, data collection and statistics um, and then we just looked at how some people who, who have a big idea are very often perceived as barking you know so um, and, that, and that was a big discipline for me to make sure that I covered all the curriculum but that they knew why they were doing it. Mm. 
and they knew what the and they so that they so they left when they left school they had a really integrated sense and, I, and this is where I'm very critical of the of the of uh, um, education systems and I work in them I have to I'm preparing kids for exams and getting them into schools and into university and I, I, so I have to I know the system. It's easy to feel stuck now during this lockdown and. Yeah. To, You've spoken about your post-traumatic stress where you've also felt sort of in a state of feeling stuck and you had to pull yourself yeah. What would you suggest to someone who is feeling stuck? Sort of what, it's tough to say because people are all different, but what sort of tips would you suggest, you know, sort of from an author perspective, you know, if you're writing or working on a business, how would you get, how have you pulled yourself from being unstuck and also... Uh, okay, well, well right, with writing, I think the thing to do is just to write every day. Even if what you're writing is appalling, you're going to learn from it. So, um, but while the lockdown was on, I didn't write at all. It's the first time I haven't written for a, a very, very, very long time. And that was... Um, I think it was a, a recognition that I I couldn't. Um, there was a sort of fuzz going on. Um, th there was a very, very deep subliminal fear because nobody wants to get this disease. Yeah. There was a deep fear of, I've got family all over. I've got, you know, children and grandchildren in the UK. I've got, um, I've got a son and a daughter-in-law um, who is expecting my fourth grandchild in America, um, you know, I, I was terrified. Maisie was with me, which was amazing. Just by chance, she was here. So we locked down together, which was really, really precious experience. But with work being unstuck, I'm lucky with my work because I don't get stuck because my every new student is fresh. Yeah. So I can't get stuck because a new kid comes along and I've got to learn that child and think about what they need and devise a course specifically for them. Because I don't do, I don't have online courses, this is what I do. I create bespoke courses for each child. Um, so I don't get stuck. What I've noticed was quite prominent in your book as well is that you're quite a strong feminist, which is amazing, I love it. I hold it dear to yes. my heart. So, I wanted to open the question and ask you, what does feminine leadership mean to you? Well, I've, I mean, um, politically, I'm in, I'm in big trouble because we've had two female prime ministers in my country and they are not, um, you know, neither of them were Jacinda. Um, yeah. I think really careful here because I'm, I, I'm a hardcore feminist uh, and I have been for you know, since I was about 15. Remember, I was, I was, I'm 66. So I was a teenager during the 60s. And there's sort of that, you know, that, that, that big wave of feminism profoundly impacted on me. And I was raised by, I was born in 1954, um, during a period of extreme female oppression. And my beloved mum, um, who I ad adored was not a feminist and it created some s s serious problems. So I had to, I had to learn about feminism and um, through, 
through the media, through books, through songs, through talking, through looking at the paper. Um, raising sons um, as a feminist is really, really important. I remember raising my children, my boys, thinking they are going to be, there are women alive, girls alive, at this moment, who are going to love and be loved by my sons. And I need to make sure that I hand on to those women that I have not yet met, feminist men who understand what it is to be a woman, who understand the, um, the injustices and, and who take responsibility for that. And I am so proud of my boys. Now they are, you know, they're, they're, they're you know, Lord, they were raised in the African bush. They're big, strong, tough, you know, they, there's nothing, you know, but my God, that every one of them are feminists. And so I think feminine leadership, I think, I think we all need to be working together. I, I think that um, just because, I don't think somebody should get a job just because they're a woman. I think they should get a job because they're good at it. Mm. Um, I think that um, what I have zero tolerance for are men who um, oppress women. And I think that it is the responsibility of men now to make the change. I really do. We need the feminist men. And being a feminist man makes you a very strong and attractive human being. Because women now are not interested unless, you know, really? Of course not. You want to have a man who, 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 who knows that you are equal and that, you know, in terms of my work, I want to get paid the same money. In terms of my my respect, I want to get, but I am a woman and I am different to a man, mm. and I love being a woman. My my femaleness is is incredibly important to me, in the same way that my their maleness is important to their to my sons, but not to the exclusion. So, you know, a lot of, I, I, I get quite upset when some women go, oh, well, I'm not a feminist because, you know, I don't want to wander around in dungarees and what? And I, and I shave and yeah. <laughs> what? Darling, you know, I, you know, I go to bed alone and I always wear scent to go to bed. Always. I cannot go to sleep unless I've sprayed myself with scent. That's for me, you know? It's important. These are being 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 a girl. I love all those girly things. I celebrate that. Mm. But my feminism is a deeply. It's 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 not a, 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 a um, an external thing. It's a it's a it's a way of being. Um, and I and I think it's really 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 important. And that's why I think that. You know, I worry about backlashes. Um, you know, we've had we had a big backlash in the 1980s. We've had big. I fear a backlash to the wonderful Me Too movement, and um, we we need men to stand now, side by side, because we have. You know, in it's going on in America is dangerous for women. It's dangerous. We, we cannot allow it. And, you know, what happened to me um, has not made me hate men. 
and the responsibility that boys have, and I give talks about this, it's really important. No means no, and you can change your mind. And I've been in relationships, happy relationships with the really successful, happy sex lives, and for one reason or another, one night I haven't wanted to make love. And I'm allowed to say no. We're allowed to do that because it's a different, it is very shocking. It was very, very profoundly shocking to me how it broke me. And it took away my choice and it took away my control at a fundamental level that shocked me to my core. Um, and it made me realize, um, you know, there, there is something very, very, very profound about the, entering somebody's body, yeah. you know? It's a very, very, um, and, uh, and, and it has to be, it, it has to be consensual. And um, I don't care. Um, these are rules that we need to lay down early, early on with our boys. It's not about you know, you know, oh girls, you know, don't don't go, you know, don't go out wearing short skirts. It's, it's nothing to do with telling our daughters what they mustn't do. It's telling our sons what they mustn't do. That's the responsibility. Really, really, really. It, because that they are the perpetrators sorry for that but they are so we need them to know and it doesn't matter if you're you know you, you know you, if you're pissed or whatever you know you, you've still got a brain with every you know you 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 can still tell what's right and wrong it's really really important and we need to be teaching this we need to be teaching this to our children and we need to be teaching this in sex education and we need to be sharing this openly and freely move on to our segment that i call the abcs yes so your a what was your amazing affluent aha moment in your life journey Oh my gosh. Okay. I've had, I've had lots. I've had lots, but the ones that were really life changing, I had one aha moment on stage when I was playing Kate in The Taming of the Shrew and it was a matinee, Wednesday matinee. And I was doing the curtain call and I looked out at the audience and you know there was lots of cheering and clapping and thank you very much and I thought that not one of these people out there love me and the people that do love me are 60 miles away at home. I would be better to spend my time with them. That was an aha moment. That brings us to B. What would, was it like a bad business plan or just a bad moment for you, a failure moment that you think really translate into most aspects of your life? I think there've been lots, there've been lots of moments. I am not a businesswoman. I have a, a you know, I, my, my business is just me. I don't have a secretary. I don't have a, so um, the mistakes that I make sometimes are taking on 
more than I than I can do, and it matters because each they you, you've got to build trust with a child, and you've got to be able to really think fast and go. Okay, this was my plan. It's not working. What can I do next? How can I? You've got to be able to turn on a sixpence. Um, and then see. So our comical, cinema-worthy cock-up moment. Oh, darling, that my, that, that's just so many. I can't even tell you. My my worst cinematically. Um, that's very interesting that you said cinematically. I do have one, and and I look a, a total moron. Um, I went to pick up. This is when we were r running the line research, and um, I went to pick up some veterinary students who were doing, who were studying at um, one of the universities in California. So these young kids, they were they, they were at university, but um, you know, young, arriving in Africa for the first time. Picked them up from the airport. They were adorable. Bundled them into the car. Drove to the supermarket that I always drive to, parked in the spot that I always drive in, and drove straight down a six foot hole which had recently been dug there. So darling, I'd got these brand new students. I'd literally known them for two seconds, all right? And we were like this. So I was going, don't worry, my darlings, it's all going to be fine. Poor little things, you know, their first time ever in Africa. So, okay, so I get that sorted out and get help and we get winched out and blah, blah, blah. go and do the shop, great. And they've never seen a shop like it because we're going into the bush for three weeks. So they, they didn't know about bush shopping and all the cooler bags and ice and the, it's, a, it's a mission. Anyway, got them in the back of the car, set off for the bush, car breaks down. Okay, serious problem. These are, you know, that I, I, I've got to look after these kids, but a little bit and I thought, okay, I'm going to deal with this quickly. So I said, don't worry, stay here. I ran across the Malakbo to a friend of mine, said, can I borrow your car? I've got a car full of students. Yes. So off, they think I'm a miracle worker, this woman that runs into a field and comes back with a car. How does this work? They didn't know how things worked in mind. Brilliant. So off we go. Fantastic. Of course, on the way into the bush, um, have, a, um, have a puncture. So I'm there, you know, changing the tire and they are, you know, gazing in wonder at me. I think, good God, they must have seen something changing the tire. But they're all so jaded. And, um, and they said, oh, it's incredible, you know, and you just didn't mind that elephant. And I went, what elephant? And I turned around, there was a bloody great elephant right behind me. I mean, so sweaty, I didn't, and so, there was, so they thought I was an absolute hero driving on. It's now dark and the sun comes up again. And I am, and I'm going, this is cataclysmic. This is an apocalyptic moment. I have got other people's children in the car. This is going to be our last moment on earth. My, this is not good. And I, I was being very calm. I was thinking, how can I support these children through this? Because this is a this is a monumental moment in human history. And they looked at me and said, oh, it is the most beautiful moon. I've never seen a moon like it. Thank God I didn't say anything, darling. I've never seen a giant orange moon. I haven't been in Botswana that long. I've never seen one. Can you imagine if I had said anything to them? 
what they would have gone back to America. They would have thought they were in the hands of an idiot. So th th these are things that have happened to me that have caused me deep embarrassment. When I told my family, I mean, they have teased me about it forever, forever and ever. And ever. Um, thank you so much for sharing. And now that brings me to our challenge portion. So oh my gosh. So inspired by your stories about how you custom your um, education program with each child yeah. and then also in the first term where you didn't actually do any written assessments and you did yeah. it through verbal or yeah. um, experiments and you know, yeah. You yeah spoke about rock paintings yeah. one of this challenge to be sort of a pictionary non-verbal communication where we're going to draw oh my god and then we have to guess it you, you won't be able to, darling, but let's try. Oh, I've never, I've never played this. Oh, this is fun. And I must do this. Oh, okay. All right. Then when uh, the word uh, comes up. I've, I've got a word. I've got a word. Okay. Do you I've, want to draw it then? And then I'll try and guess. Yes. Yes. I, I, okay. Oh, I hate this. Okay, <laughs> darling. There you go. Um, let, now, hold on a minute. I've now got to go back from the, um, how can you, I can't, I've lost you. There we go. So, can you see that? Is it? Oh, um, you see? Is it butter toast? Is it? Oh, you're so close! This. What is this? Bread. Yes. Oh, is it bread? Yes, <laughs> I did it. See, you did it. That was easy. You didn't have that then. <laughs> okay, now. Oh wow. Okay, I've got a word. Um. Let me try and draw it like on screen. Okay, so. <laughs> this is so funny. I can't, I can't, I can't really this see because the lights. Okay. Oh, 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 a, 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 a skateboard. Yes. Uh, yeah, 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 yes, good. Oh, oh, we, we, okay, yes. We nailed this. Do you, do you want to do one more? Let's do one Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I'm. I'm also very excited. I've never. I've never used this before. So. Um, oh, this is. Oh, okay. This. This. Yeah. This one. Even I can do this one. Okay. Um, here we go. But do you see what I'm saying, darling? It's not very mature. Is it sleeping? Stuff. It's so close. What am I sleeping on? Bed. Oh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> I, said I, I elaborated it too much because I. I wasn't sure whether. <laughs> Okay, this is, will be an interesting one. Uh, uh, I'm going to do this with my students. It's such a <laughs> fun. Uh, oh, I wouldn't even know. Let me. This is going to be so horrible. Whoever's going to see this is going to be like, well, she clearly can't draw. Um, I don't know. You... Oh, sweet. Oh, it's a duck. It's a it's a swan. It's a duck. It's a duck on skates. No, no, no. It's not a duck. Oh, Chicken. I knew it. Yes. Yes. <laughs> duck on skates. <laughs> it's a chicken. <laughs> I was trying to get like the head. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. And the eggs. <laughs> Where I like to close off the, the interviews just with three quick fire questions that you don't prepare for just so it just comes to top of mind um, number one what is a quote that you live by oh definitely um socrates an unexamined life is not worth living love that and what is 
a daily ritual for you? What is something that you have to do every day? Well, it's part of every day routine. Without question, first thing in the morning, coffee and bread with olive oil, for sure. It's so Italian of you. <laughs> and final question, is Italy your last stop or what's next on the cards? Oh, good question. Can't answer that because I never know. Um, I love Italy. I am so, so happy. I don't, I, 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 I may, I don't know. I don't know. And that's what's the fun. That's the fun of it, isn't it? I don't know what's going to happen. Something may happen which whisks me off somewhere else. Um, I definitely want to go back to South America. I definitely want to be in the Andes again. Oh, I feel like I could talk for hours and hours and hours, but unfortunately, I do have to end our interview now. Uh, Bless you, my darling. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it, Nikki. And thank it's been you so, so much. It's a pleasure. And I hope to see you in Cape Town one day. Yes, when you come down, you we have to connect and then we can have a face-to-face -face conversation and discussion. I love it. So forward thank to that. Well, uh, there's just so much covered with Kate that it's so difficult to try and put in a little blurb summary of what we covered but that it's important to share a story because it can help someone else without you realizing that it's all right to be stuck it's good and that to not put too much pressure on yourself to allow yourself to follow your nose and what you feel is the right decision for you and that we can consume knowledge and apply it to ourselves through every walk of life and every aspect and there's a lesson in everything that we do. On the next Tea with Nikki, I sit down with Taylor Sutherland and we discuss her beginning stages of getting Boulevard Boutique off the ground, how she dealt with the legal processes, how they pivoted during COVID-19 and what she has coming up in October, November. It's definitely something you're not going to want to miss.